Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 6, verse 1. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 1. Last time we saw that Satan was attempting to divide the early church by creating dissension. The Hellenists in the church complained about the Hebrews because some of their widows were being neglected. We will continue to look at the dissension in the early church and how the disciples handled it as we resume our study in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, there is a tendency in human nature, even after conversion, to split the fellowship into factions with different emphasis. What the Lord has brought together, we put asunder. I mean, think of just a few of the examples that we have today. The rifts between the pietists and the social activists, between the evangelicals and the traditional church people, between the high church advocates and the low church advocates, between the charismatics and the people who believe that all of the gifts were just for apostolic times, between the traditional church musicians and the advocates of contemporary church music, and between the intellectuals and the rationalists, and it just goes on and on and on. It is the tyranny of the either-or. It is bringing to the gospel our previous conditioning and wanting it all our way in affirmation of previous experience of royalties. And and it can cause factions and cliques. And people do and will form factions and cliques. And cliques and factions are very dangerous in the church. There are sins common to cliques that must be guarded against. The sins of being exclusive and shutting others out. The sin of feeling superior and better and above others. The sin of believing that you have more rights than others. And the sin of thinking that you are due more attention than other people. And in the early church, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, in those days, a widow, being a quote-unquote lowly woman in that culture, without a husband, was in a hopeless state. Everyone else had the normal means of support by labor or various means, but widows did not, and so a distribution was made for them. The early church practiced a form of welfare by taking care of their widows. Now, the Hebrew widows were not being neglected. They were being well taken care of, but the Greek widows were being neglected, and this caused murmuring in the church. You see, some were getting preferential treatment while some were being neglected. The word complaint in that verse is the Greek word gongusmos. Isn't that a great word? Gongusmos. It means to murmur. Murmuring is always deadly. Murmuring is always wrong. Though there was a problem, murmuring made it worse. Murmuring always makes it worse. In fact, the sin of neglect is the speck in the eye that we read about in Matthew chapter 7. The murmuring is the plank. The murmuring is the long two-by-four. It makes it a lot worse. The children of Israel wandering through the desert, I mean, that was hard enough. But murmuring in the desert made it all the worse. So here we have the early church, and now they have prejudice, and now they're murmuring. These Greek-speaking Christians 
began to complain, but they did not complain to those in authority, those who were responsible. They simply complained among themselves. With a murmuring attitude, they spread discontent throughout the whole body of Christians. And this is still the devil's favorite trick to divide Christians. You murmur when you complain about a problem, but not to the one who can do something about it. When you complain to other people who are perhaps involved, but who are not in a position to help, that is murmuring, and it is always deadly. Murmuring brought the judgment of God upon the children of Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament days. And murmuring is always the mark of querulous, discontented, unhappy spirit. In this case, it caused dissension throughout the whole congregation. The church was now under attack from within, storm clouds rising. And many churches since have been rendered absolutely useless by murmuring, by the spread of discontent and of strife that has never been brought to focus or brought for remedy to the proper constituted authorities, but was allowed simply to seethe and ferment throughout the body and to create division and schism. This was the attack by the enemy to try to destroy the effectiveness of the early church. Now somehow the apostles heard of the murmuring. It is not very long until you hear these rumors that go around. And look at the wisdom now of these apostles. The apostles were wise with the wisdom of God because they saw in that division the possibility of hurt, anger, bitterness, and rupture. Now, did they just let it go? I mean, was that the wise thing to do, just to sort of ignore it? No. Whenever trouble, whenever storm clouds begin to rise in the church, the man of God is to sense it, and he ought to meet it head on right then and settle it. It is much better to settle any kind of a problem or difficulty that arises in the church than to let it breed, multiply, and finally destroy so many people. Now, this is what the apostles did. Seeing the possibility of the ruin and the rupture in the church, they courageously and boldly faced the problem. They called together the multitude of people. Verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, it would be very easy to read that as though the apostles were saying, you know, we're too good for that. You know, we're too good to serve tables. After all, we're the apostles. I mean, let's just pick seven flunkies somewhere along the line who can do that while we devote ourselves to the tremendously spiritual work of praying and preaching. But if you read it that way, then you completely misread this passage because that is not what they did at all. The apostles had apparently been running the food ministry, but now it is getting way too large. It's getting so big that it is cut in to what their ministry is to be, and that is to pray and to study the Word of God. And there is a lesson in that for every one of us, and that is don't get sidetracked from your main ministry. Some have a tendency to get their fingers into just about everything. I mean, if there's anything going on, they want to be there. You know, we can get our time spread so thin doing the quote-unquote good things that we don't have proper time to be doing the best thing, the thing that God really wants us to do. Now, for the apostles, their main ministry was prayer and teaching. For you, it may be something else altogether. But whatever it is, 
whatever God has given you as your main ministry at this time, this season of your life, be it in the church or at home or with your spouse or with your children, the enemy will try to sidetrack you from it so that he can kill your effectiveness. Well, the apostle said, verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, the qualifications of those to be selected are very significant. First of all, notice that it says that they were to be from among you. In other words, they didn't go outside the church to hire someone to take care of this need. Those involved in the church were to be those who had been converted and transformed by the life of Jesus Christ. In other words, they were to be believers, born-again believers. The church never has any reason to go to the world for help in carrying out the life of the body. The Holy Spirit has adequately equipped the body of Christ to do all that it needs to do. And so they were to rely not upon unbelievers, but upon believers for what they had to do. And you would be surprised today how many people in churches are not born again, are not saved, who occupy places of leadership. In many churches in this city, musicians are hired. They don't know the Lord. They have no desire to know the Lord. Yet they are up front in places of leadership in many churches because they're the ones who have the talent. And the excuse that the church uses is, but they're so talented. They're so gifted. God forbid that the church would seek to have leaders that are not born again. The second qualification is, is that they should be men of good reputation. That is, they were to have a good witness in the congregation. They were to be men of good character who could be trusted, men who had already won the confidence of the people. D.L. Moody said this. He said, if I take care of my character, God will take care of my reputation. That's good. Now, this was very important. Later in the epistles, you will find that listed, men of good reputation, that is listed for qualifications for leadership in the church. Now, the ultimate qualification here, though, was that they were to be full of the Holy Spirit. And this was to be exemplified in all dimensions of their lives, intellectual, emotional, volitional. Literally, it means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. They were to function with the unction of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And the test would be in their wisdom. It says that they were to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and the test would be in their wisdom, not knowledge, not even logic. The evidence of the Spirit's indwelling would be wisdom to penetrate the deep mysteries of God and apply them in guidance to daily life. Wisdom is understood as the proper application of knowledge. Knowledgeable men are not always wise men. I mean, there are a lot of people who know a lot of things, but they don't know what to do with their knowledge. Listen to the qualities of a wise man from the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. First of all, he says that a person who is wise is one who is aware of his relationship with God. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. A person who has no humility before God is unwise. Secondly, a person who is wise is one who is slow and careful about what he says. Proverbs 17, 28. 
It says even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. A wise person isn't always the one that has the first answer, but when they do answer, they usually are the last word. And thirdly, a wise person is one who is teachable and willing to learn. Proverbs 9.9 says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. A wise person knows that they do not know it all. They want to keep growing. They want to keep learning. Now, notice that all of these qualifications are character qualifications rather than what seminary they went to, what their IQ was or what kind of intellectual prowess they had exhibited, or how many PhDs or how many degrees they had on the wall. You see, there is a whole different criteria for spiritual leadership. And these qualities should be the basis of leadership in the church today. So often our temptation is to bypass these criteria and select people with natural abilities or training in certain areas. Now, as important as that might be, without being born again, without the maximizing power of the Spirit, they can stand in the way of spiritual leadership of a church. It is perilous to lead a church on human training and human conditioning alone. The qualifications for leadership in the Church of Christ have not changed since the first century. Now, we might be able to do church work without these qualifications, but we'll never be able to do the real work of the church. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. It is thought that the reason that they chose seven is that each man could be in charge of one day per week. And at the end of the verse, it says, whom we may appoint over this business. In other words, the final decision rested with the apostles, though they wanted and they valued the input of the congregation. Verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the apostles understood their calling, they understood their responsibilities, and they understood their priorities. They were to, first of all, lay the foundation of the church. I mean, it was given to the apostles to lay the foundations, and the foundation is the scripture. It is on the scripture that the church rests. The minute the church departs from these scriptures, it loses its strength, it loses its light, it loses its understanding, and it loses its ability to operate. That has always been true. It is the unchanging pattern throughout 20 centuries of church life. Whenever the church has rested upon the foundation laid by the apostles, the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, the church has always had strength and power and grace. So it was necessary that the apostles give themselves to the ministry of apostleship, which involved, as they themselves said, prayer and the ministry of the word. As they met together in prayer, they learned and they understood the mind of God and, and, and the Spirit of God reminded them of the things which the Lord Jesus had taught them and then they in turn imparted these things to the church. Now at that time, the scriptures as we have them today were not written. None of the New Testament was in writing at this point in church life. Yet all of the truths which are in the New Testament were being uttered by the apostles as they taught the people as they went from place to place. They taught them, and now we have them written down for us. And all we have, by the way, is the word of the apostles. 
The whole New Testament is nothing but the word of the apostles given to us. So it is essential, as they understood it, to devote themselves to this. So they say in verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And how important this is for the church today. Too many churches have left the word of God to serve tables. In the name of the social gospel, in the name of being hip and being cool and being relevant and being user-friendly, they say, well, after all, we don't want to drive people away with the truth. So let's not tell them the truth. Or better yet, we will candy coat the truth and we'll put such a thick coating of candy around the medicine that by the time they swallow it, it's too late, it's already there, and they're hooked. And many churches who have in times past been known for teaching the truth, for teaching the Word of God, keeping good priorities, have succumbed to this whole idea of entertaining the goats rather than feeding the sheep, leaving the Word of God to serve tables. And ministers have done this as well, leaving the study of the Scripture to do everything else but that, getting involved with all of the busy work and not doing the study that God requires. A Bible teacher once said this, if you preach to a hundred people for one hour and you speak to them unprepared, you have just wasted a hundred hours of God's time. A pastor should never waste the time of people who are hungry and who want to be fed. He owes it to them to study, to be a spiritual cook and to give them a good meal. Listen, we should be like our mothers used to say, I've been slaving over a hot stove all day. And that's what I do, and that's what I want to do. Slave over the stove of the scriptures to always give a balanced meal. A young man said to the great late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he's one of the great teachers in the last century, he said, I would give the world to be able to teach the Bible like you. And looking him straight in the eye, Dr. Barnhouse replied, that's good because that's exactly what it'll cost you. Give up everything and focus on the Word of God. And so the apostles lay out the two main components to spiritual leadership, prayer and the ministry of the Word. And I believe that this applies to every one of us. I mean, whether it's being the pastor of a church or teaching a Sunday school or just being a good parent in raising your children in the ways of the Lord, prayer and the ministry of the Word. Verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, did you notice anything about those names? They're all Greek names. Who complained? The Greeks. How do you solve the problem? Well, in great grace, give them all Greeks who are now in charge of the program. The Greeks feel slighted, the Greeks will serve. The Greeks feel neglected, the Greeks are now in charge of this ministry. That is a beautiful way in grace to bring unity to the church. See, they use great, great wisdom. And that's just a demonstration of great wisdom. Chuck Smith tells this story, and I'm going to quote it. He's talking about his mother who had great wisdom to solve a problem in the home. And I quote, When we were growing up, I had two brothers and my mom was an outstanding pie baker, among other things, and there was always that problem of the last piece of pie. 
And so often my brother and I would be vying for that last piece of pie. And that's a polite way of saying we were fighting. I fought over more than one piece of pie, and I always had the advantage being the older brother. But when we would bring our dispute to my mom, and we would both be claiming that piece of pie, or desiring our portion of that piece of pie, she would always let one of us cut it in half, and the other one got the first choice. Boy, I mean, we got out the micrometers. It was just a good solution to a difficult problem." End quote. And the early church showed great wisdom in bringing a good solution to this difficult problem. Verse 5 in this saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to see a great deal about Stephen in the coming weeks, and so I'm not going to make much comment now other than to say that he had a tremendous ministry of wonders and miracles. He was arrested. And he gave a tremendous message to the Sanhedrin, and then they put him to death, and he becomes the first martyr of the church. Next it says Philip, and we'll see some of Philip's further ministry a little later on. In Acts 8, Philip's chapter, we see Philip going north to Samaria, where a huge revival breaks out in his ministry as an evangelist. Philip was also to be the one who was used to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. Then it says Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas. And we don't really know anything about these men for sure. Some of the accounts of church history record these men of going to be leaders of churches uh, in various churches around the world. And then finally it says Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Nicholas was a Gentile. He wasn't born a Jew, but he was converted to Judaism. Now many scholars believe that after serving faithfully for a season, Nicholas veered off into heresy and started a sect known as the Nicolaitans that you read about in Revelation 2 and Revelation chapter 3. The word nikos means ruler, laity means the people. Nicolaitan, the Nicolaitan ruling over the people. So Nicolaitans became heavy-handed rulers over the people, uh, telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do, telling them uh, that they had to check with them before they made any decisions. And of course, even today, you have uh, that kind of doctrine in different places. It's called the shepherding movement, where your shepherd tells you absolutely everything that you can do and can't do. You can't buy a car or sell a car. You can't do anything without their permission. Now, we don't know for sure, but the weight of the evidence seems to indicate that Nicholas was one who got off balance. This can happen. It can happen to pastors, to husbands, to wives, to parents. Those in positions of authority can tend to be overbearing in their ministry, telling people what they should and they should not do. Paul the Apostle wisely said this, 2 Corinthians 1.24. He said, We do not seek to have dominion over you, but are helpers of your joy. True ministry is not overbearing, but undergirding. True ministry does not put people down. It lifts them up. So verse 6 says, Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So these spirit-filled men, who were known for their witness and for their wisdom, were brought to the apostles and consecrated with the laying on of hands. And then peace and unity returned to the church, and the central work of sharing the good news was continued with a particular sign of blessing. We see that in verse 7. Then the word of God spread, 
and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, what does it mean when it says the word of God spread? Literally, the word of God was growing. The word of God was abounding. You see, the ministry of the word of God is like a living organism, and it can grow, not just spreading the gospel, but also growing more and more important in the lives of those who believe. And the inference is that it's growing all the more. It's abounding now that the apostles are more concentrated on the ministry of the word. But not only that, it says the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And that is always the effect of the abounding word of God. All we need to do is just get the truth out to the people. The Bible is the truth. You see, the Bible is the truth. It is the way that things really are. We are living in a world ruled by illusion and fantasy, and people are confused and, and disturbed and upset. They feel that there's nothing certain, that there's nothing to be trusted, that they don't know where to turn, they don't know what to believe, and the truth hits with wonderful impact upon such minds. There is an immediate awareness, as there was in Jesus' days on the earth, that what is being said is right. In other words, there's a ring of truth to it. As the word of truth abounds, disciples multiply because men and women are drawn to the truth. They want to know what is right and what is real and what is honest and what is genuine. At the end of verse 7, it says, And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, these were men who were active all day long in ritual, religious ritual. These priests were the ones who had to slay the animals that were offered as sacrifice for the sin. They did this on the altars at the temple. They had to perform many rituals and read certain prescribed passages. They were religious people performing ritualistic observances. But now, with the word of God hitting them and the truth about Jesus being set before them, something is happening. They were discovering that Jesus was the key to all of this, you see? That Jesus was the key to their ritual, that Jesus was the key to all of these sacrifices and all of these animals, all of these ritualistic practices had an explanation in Jesus. They all pointed to him. He was the fulfillment. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And these priests began to be obedient to the truth as they heard and they saw the application of these sacrifices to themselves. Some of those who had been in the greatest opposition to the Christians now were joining them. You see, there is always hope for the lost. If a great many of the Jewish priests could be saved, so can your hard-hearted relatives. Do you have friends and loved ones that don't know the Lord? Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. And one final note. Note the words, they were obedient to the faith. It means that they were obedient in both receiving Christ and in following Christ. You see, they embraced the gospel, but they also lived the gospel. And that is God's desire for each one of us, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, not only embracing the gospel, but living the gospel. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, May it always be so in your life. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. 
Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gibb teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's way.